on today's show with everything going on surrounding COVID and how are sports going to make it through this? We'll chat with Marley Scott. Housing is both a human right and it's a profitable asset. And that is the key issue. And NASA's brand new 10 billion dollar space telescope the james webb telescope is officially going to launch more bad news for flames fans uh this morning it was just announced that they have now added two more um players to their covid protocol list dylan dubay and oliver kylington and one member of the support staff which now <laughs> brings them up to 18 players they carry 25 on their lo- roster so uh not good All of their games through Saturday have now been postponed. Uh, I don't see how they could possibly get back on the ice by next week. I don't know exactly how the NHL rules work. I think it's two negative tests and you're brought off uh, COVID protocol. But they're not alone, as you know. Uh, All kinds of teams reporting it. Uh, Edmonton had at least one player and one coach in COVID protocol. Uh, Bruins have been hit. Carolina's been hit. Vancouver's been hit. Nashville's been hit. Games postponed. I don't know. It feels to me like things are just hanging by a thread. But let's bring in Morley Scott, 630 Chad Sports, and get his take on what's going on here. And Morley, it seems to me, and I was listening to uh, some other broadcasters yesterday who do hockey, and they're sort of in the same position saying, you know what? feels a lot like when all of a sudden things got shut down in March of 2020. Do you think it's that bad? I, I, well, it could be, but I don't think they're going to get to where they got to in, in 2020 because I, I just can't see them uh, shutting it all down right now because there's just too much money on the line, right? And I think if, uh, if leagues can play through the height of the pandemic last year without vaccines, uh, they can play through uh, a resurgence of the pandemic with vaccines. And, and as I know you talked about this a lot yesterday, Shane, we talked about it a bit this morning on our show uh, with, with John Shannon. Right now, it's a lot of asymptomatic players. Yes, right. And it is a amazing to me and i know this is a this is a horrible disease and when you get it it's debilitating and it's fatal for some and it's it's has long-term effects but to me i look at the professional athletes who have gotten it they miss a week and they're back they're back to work right uh there's been very few who have been out long term and have really been hit hard by this and i think it's because they're in such great shape their lung capacity is so good they're able to fight it off a little bit better than than the average person so i i as long as they're not getting sick um, like they were, you know, like the Vancouver Canucks were last year. I mean, the, the Canucks not only got the disease, uh, the the virus through their dressing room, but I mean, they were sick. They were guys who were just wiped right. out. In fact, they were. The NHL said, "You're coming back this week," and they said, "No, we ha- we can't. We we just can't play. We can barely practice right now. We got no strength and no stamina." So they, I think, they gave them like an extra five or six days or so to, before they returned. So as as long as it's asymptomatic, I think they're going to keep going, and I think at the very worst, they'll get down to to where we were last. Last year and playing without fans in the stands and and maybe that would be what you know as far as they can go but i don't see them shutting down professional sports again because of this i'm with you more and i think i don't know if they're just going to soldier through but if you take a look at this and we're waiting to see what happens with omicron and but what we're seeing is the symptoms are very mild well we don't shut down um anything if you've got a very very infectious disease spreading around that doesn't really make people sick and i'm not and like you i understand that some people could be very negatively affected but it doesn't seem to me like we're in a position if like i know i was listening to an interview with bruce cassidy who had covid and was out for i think he missed 10 days or something like that and they asked him how he said well i'm a little tired a couple of days maybe i had a fever one day but other than that i felt fine um but he had to wait for his negative test so He's not even an athlete at this point in his career. Mm-hmm. He's a coach. So I don't know. But at the same time, you've got Ottawa or Ontario, the government shutting down capacity by half. So I don't know where it falls. 
But, but who are they? Who are they shutting down? Though they're shutting down the people who are more vulnerable, right? They're right, not shutting right. down the athletes. True, they're shutting true. down the fans and and keeping and allowing them to keep their distance from each other. Uh, and you know, because all we've heard from this is it's it's it spreads quicker, but it's not as serious, right? And and that's going to change because everything always changes in this whole thing we've gone through in the last two years, right? But right now, it's it's ex, ex, extremely it spreads quickly. And it's not as serious. So if you can keep it from spreading, maybe that's the best thing to do. Because even even if people do get sick, it's going to, you know, people are going to end up in hospital with it. Right. It's going to, you know, overwhelm the health system a little bit more. And that's the last thing anybody needs right now. So maybe it's a good move. I don't know. I don't think that moves. And it's, we've been pretty much told that move's not coming in Alberta right now. Yes. So uh, the Flames and owners uh, won't have to worry about that moving forward. Or the World Juniors coming up in, in Edmonton and Red Deer won't have to worry about that that either. But, uh, you know, it's maybe good. Ontario's, Ontario hasn't been out ahead of much in this whole thing, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe now they've learned their lesson. Uh, I doubt it, but maybe uh, they're, they're getting out ahead of things a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they don't want to be caught in the position they were before. So we'll see how that shapes up. Now, the other question I have for you, um, the Olympics. There's no mm-hmm. way the NHL can go to the Olympics, right? There's no well, way. Yeah, unless they can work some kind of deal. And, and I don't know who's three to five weeks, who's making these rules, if it's the Chinese government or if it's the yeah. IOC. But if, you if it's the Chinese weeks, government, there's, probably, there's not there's, a chance you can go. Yeah, if, if, if it's the Chinese government making the rules, then you probably don't have much of a chance to make a deal, right? right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you probably can't negotiate with them very well. Uh, but if it's the IOC, maybe they can say, okay, uh, if, if any of our players test positive, we can maybe put them on one charter plane and get them home, right? Yeah. Maybe and, and get them out of your country and they won't be spreading around, right? Maybe that will work. I don't know. But you're right. Right now, the owners have said it's basically up to the players. They've passed the buck to the players and said, it's your decision to make if you want to go or not. But that's now changed a bit because this three to five week quarantine, now that affects the owners, right? Because now Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, the, whoever the, the best players are uh, in the on their teams, now they're going to miss three to five weeks after the Olympics if they get COVID late in the Olympics. And now it's going to cost me money because people yeah. aren't going to come and pay money to watch my team play. So now the owners are going to get more invested in this, I think, as they move forward. So that's they got to sort this three to five week thing out. And it, it, whether you know whether they, there's a deal to be made, I don't know. But I can't see. You're right. I can't see the owners being happy and allowing players to go if they could lose them for up to a month or more after the Olympics are over. No, and, and you know what? It, it, if you're I mean, let's just pull a name out of the hat. You're Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, and you're over there, and for whatever reason, you test positive, you know, in the final week or the final day of competition, mm-hmm. and you're told you have to stay for five weeks. Meanwhile, you've got a playoff race going on back yeah. in Edmonton, and you can't be there. There's no team that's going to want to have that No, absolutely. You know, yeah, that, and that's going to be, what, near the end of February, right? Exactly, so you're yeah. going into February and into March, like the most important stretch drive, part of the stretch drive, right, heading into into April, the last month of the season. So you could really do yourself a disservice if you don't have your best players playing exactly. through, the month of, through the month of March or for those four or five weeks, whatever it is, after the Olympics. You could be out of the race very quickly. I mean, just look at the Oilers in the last, you know, week and a half. They lose six in a row. They go from first to fourth and, and just point up yep. on on the playoff pack right so things can turn around in a hurry and and you don't want to be helpless and not have your best players available other leagues uh we're coming up on playoffs and super bowl time uh, for the nfl they're starting to see some issues with a bunch of different teams yeah nba too 
Yeah, and I read a story yesterday about the NFL, and and, and, uh, the the guy who wrote the story was was urging the NFL to take action sooner rather than later because California, the Super Bowl's in Los Angeles this year, right? California is one of the stricter states. They've had uh, precautions in place, and they've they've had, uh, you know, all the protocols in place, and and they've been some of the last states to lift those protocols. So now they're saying, what happens if it gets really bad, say, through the rest of December and into January? And all of a sudden on January 20th, uh, the state of California says, okay, uh, we're going to 25% capacity and people can't gather in bars. The Super Bowl is at the beginning of February, and, and what does the NFL do at that point, right? Yeah. You're, you're screwed at that point. There's Run nothing to you can do. <laughs> but now there's now this the story I read, the guy was urging the NFL to move now and move the Super Bowl to Arizona. Okay. Uh, and because they have an infrastructure in place because they're hosting it next year, I believe. So uh, move the move it to Arizona now so that they don't have the danger of having to give back money to 75% of their fans or 50% of their fans who bought tickets. And they don't have the danger of maybe having to shut down all the parties that go right. around the Super Bowl, you know, in that city. Because, Jay, as you know, the Super Bowl is the Grey Cup of American football. Yeah, I've heard that. I, I can't <laughs> imagine it rise to the same level, but they try. It's close. <laughs> Yeah, Morley, I don't know. It's just a crazy time. And I guess we just yep. fingers crossed and hope that everything works out. Uh... Here's, some, here's something for you, too. Uh, today, the Nashville Predators, who uh, put, I believe, uh, 12, 12 people yeah. on the, the COVID list yesterday, they've called up, here it is, they've called up four players and two coaches from the American <laughs> Hockey League for their game tonight. So their coaching staff is out, so they've called up the coaching staff of uh, the Milwaukee team in the American Hockey League to coach their game tonight. Caroline is going to play uh, with 16 players tonight because they just don't have enough healthy players. And I still blame Carolina for this whole mess almost, right? Because, yeah. you know, their patient zero maybe as they went through Western Canada. And, and if you follow the dots everywhere they have gone, uh, they have, uh, you know, the the, next, the team, they've left the team and, and that team has gotten some COVID issues, Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. And Carolina, I feel bad for them because they have left players on this road. They've been on a road trip and as the players test positive, they have to go in quarantine. So I think they've got a couple <laughs> players in, in Vancouver. They've got a couple players in Minnesota waiting for the quarantine to end and then, and then go back to Carolina. It's crazy. But then the other question, Morley, and you know this, is the integrity of the competition. I mean, if you're if Carolina's putting on a team with 16 skaters, you've got yeah. coaches coming up. Uh, the Bruins are going to have to go without Bergeron and Marchand for I don't know how long, and that is the Boston Bruins. At some point, you got to say this isn't, yeah. it isn't yeah. right. But yeah, and and I hate to be this this blatant about it, but what, you asked the Carolina Hurricanes ownership what they want to do. Uh, do they want to play uh, with a substandard team, or do they want to give money back for a postponed game? True. Yeah. yeah. And we know the answer to that, right? <laughs> Throw them true. out there, see how they do. Go get them, fellas. <laughs> yeah. Ka-ching. You're absolutely right, and I, I it, it's it's a mess. I don't know. We'll just wait and see. But uh, I appreciate you coming on. We'll check in again as we follow this along. Thanks, Morley. Yeah, no problem, Shane. Anytime. Yeah, you bet. That's Morley Scott, uh, six thirty Chet Sports, and I really don't know. Dave from uh, A Town says it wasn't Carolina. Calgary got it, and Carolina spread it. I don't know. Morley's laid out a pretty good case, and so have some other people that Carolina brought it to Western Canada, and then it spread through Vancouver, through Calgary, Edmonton. Then Boston came to uh, Western Canada. They played Calgary shortly after that. They picked up a couple of cases. Edmonton has a couple of cases. Vancouver's got some cases. So uh, the common link between all of those is Carolina. Unless you're saying that Carolina got it from Calgary, but then I think they went to Vancouver before Cal- So I don't know. Who cares? Uh, it spread through Western Canada. And, you know... 
I was reading yesterday, as I've told you, I'm a Bruins fan. So one of their considerations now, they play tonight in New York, okay? And then they play Saturday in Montreal. Their plan originally was to play the game in New York tonight, hop on a plane, fly to Montreal, and be there for the game on Saturday. They have now said, no, we're going to go to New York, play the game, and stay there. We're going to stay in New York as long as we possibly can. Like, they're even talking about flying out day of the game on Saturday to Montreal. Why? They don't want their players in Canada any longer than they have to be because if they test positive and get stuck, they can't get back across the border for Christmas. So, I mean, these are the kinds of considerations that teams are facing now. And I don't know how long that's sustainable. Uh, is it going to fall apart and collapse? you got Carolina putting out 16 skaters. Nashville calling up coaches. I mean, the Bruins had to go with an assistant coach because their coach was in quarantine. Oilers coaches in quarantine. I mean, it's, I don't know. We'll see. As we've talked about, depending on who you talk to, they call it a crisis. Uh, some people say that it's, um, you know, it's just pricing itself right out of reach for so many Canadians. But if you think about it, it's a crisis if you're trying to buy a home for sure, and especially in some parts of the country. Uh, but if you're someone who's involved in real estate, not necessarily a crisis. It's kind of like the perfect thing for you. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a chance to make a whole lot of money because the market is booming. So. That's sort of the dichotomy that we have surrounding real estate. And it goes a little bit deeper than that, according to our next guest, who is Brian Doucette, Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion at the University of Waterloo. Brian, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Good morning. You know, that, that contradiction there where you've got a lot of people saying, oh, we've got a crisis, nobody can afford to buy a house, but at the same time, prices are going through the roof and people are making lots of money. It's that contradiction that's sort of at the core of this solving, quote-unquote, solving this problem, right? Yes. I think there's a lot of things that, that we, we talk about in terms of solutions, in terms of ideas that don't really yeah. confront this dual role that housing plays in our society. It's shelter and a basic human right. And our governments have have affirmed that basic human right. Um, But it's also a source of wealth and speculation. It's a commodity that is bought and sold purely for its exchange value, right? What what it's worth as something to buy and sell. And it's also something that has a very important use value in our society. And that is shelter. Everybody needs a home. Everyone needs a place to live. Yeah, and, and you're right, because the debates we have don't talk about that. The debates we have talk about we don't have enough supply, or the zoning is wrong, or, I mean, we sort of get into the minutia of it without really taking a look at, like you say, the fact that you've got a major contradiction here. Exactly, and all those things, you know, zoning and density and supply, they're important to understand. It's not that they're not unimportant, yes. but you're right. Those conversations need to be focused on... If not that central contradiction, they need to be focused on on broader questions of supply for whom, right? So yeah. I, I I think you know there's lots of different ways we can measure the housing market in terms of supply and and so on. But unless we're actually you know critically interrogating what kind of supply is being built in terms of is it affordable or who is who it's affordable for who it's not, um, what kind of households can live in it if it's all you know very small. Um, studios and one bedrooms we can add lots of units and the market is very very good at adding lots of of those units particularly along transit corridors like you know, lrt corridors and waterloo where i live and calgary and edmonton and, and and other places but unless that supply addresses the residential demand for example a huge demand for family size units that are affordable that are close to good transit you know 
just looking at the numbers is is very limiting. And when we take a look at, like you say, you know, zoning and increasing supply and those sorts of things, how are they counterproductive in some cases? And, and what should they be, when we talk about using those kind of levers to, quote-unquote, solve the situation, what should we be doing? Sure. I mean, zoning has a role to play. So in a lot of cities across Canada, there are many parts of the city, you know, majority of, of uh, the city in, in, in some instances, or, or majority of the residential areas, where planning rules dictate that you simply can't, Add density. You can demolish a small, um, you know, detached house and build a much bigger detached house, and that's about all the the, the changes that the zoning permits. Right, and that is pro- problematic. Um, that that for for many reasons, as I get into in in the article. However, there's very little evidence that I've come across to indicate that if you simply change that zoning, right, uh, and allow for a lot more density without somehow guiding that development, guiding what gets built and get for whom. So, you know, being reducing some of the planning zoning rules or changing some of the zoning rules, but also being proactive in shaping the nature of that intensification. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the literature, the research, you know, from, from across many different countries indicates that, okay, you can build more housing and it will address some housing needs, but it won't be the kind of transformational approach that we need to get, for example, you know, genuinely affordable housing for people on low and moderate incomes and afford housing that is affordable to families on a range of incomes. So that's why we also need a bit more of a proactive approach, you know, not just to shape where development gets built, but who it's for. Right. Um, and also who, who can sort of profit from it. Right. Well, that's you know, the, the question. Uh, like, how do you do that? How do you? Okay, because like you say, that's that's part of the equation is making sure it's affordable as a human right. But the other side of the equation is it is an investment. It is a money maker. It is a commodity. How do you remove that from the equation, or should you remove that from the equation? Well, I think we have to be careful to distinguish. You know, somebody who owns a home and they have a use value as their home, mm-hmm. right? It has an exchange value, and that exchange value will will shift over time. But the primary, you know, someone who owns their home, they're living in it, you know, that's going to have an important use value for them as shelter and will have some sort of exchange value. And there's a fundamental difference between that and the the people or the firms or the, you know, the highly institution, you know, highly uh, large financialized institutions who own two, three, ten, one hundred properties, right? There's an important difference for, for that. Um, there are things that can be done. There are things like vacancy taxes, um, speculator taxes. You can tax second homes. You can reduce demand for housing. We always talk about increasing supply, yes. right? What about trying to reduce demand for housing for people who already own homes, right? You could put, if, if you're having a new development, you, know, you could put a primary residency requirement yep. on um, new, 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 building, new, new houses that are sold. So it means if you own it, you buy it. Or if, if, sorry, if you buy it, you must you live, have to live in it. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of things um, like that that can kind of disincentivize speculation. Um, because, you know, all this investment, all this speculation, all this commodification of housing, it makes it prone to huge fluctuations, right? So rather than property prices increasing at a sort of, you know, a bit more of a, a, a manageable rate um, that keeps more people being able to to enter into the, the housing market, you get these extreme fluctuations. Now they're going up, but the opposite could also happen yes. when you have all this 
uh, speculative money, um, you know, just like any other commodity. If there's something else that's, uh, you know, that, that, that money wants to invest in, it, it might go elsewhere. Uh, so when we hear government and, you know, the Liberal government talking about, we're going to increase supply, we're going to throw all kinds of money into the system and increase the supply of affordable housing in Canada, um, they're missing that key component, right? I mean, increasing the supply in some cases will only increase the demand and the investment and the speculation, like you say. That's only one part of it, and it will not solve the problem. Well, this is this is where it's great to, to have the opportunity to, to write pieces like I did in the conversation, yeah. right, where you can expand on things, to come on a show like yours and really talk through certain things, right? The, the debates like this about, about housing are really ill-suited to, to social media and things like Twitter, where it's very sort of blunt and, and so on. So, yes, supply needs to increase as the population increases. That's clear. And, you know, I think it, it's actually a very difficult question, um, statistically, are we actually adding enough supply to meet the population? There's very different ways of looking at it and different conclusions that people can draw. Uh, an important sort of thing to be clear about or an important myth that, that maybe we can dispel, the private sector does not have a monopoly mm-hmm. on adding supply. And, you know, so much of, of, our, of our government thinking at all levels, provincial, federal, municipal, is very much sort of connected to the idea that the market, to the private developers are the ones that can build housing. But really, until the, the early 1990s, we had steady streams of funding from uh, the federal government and from provincial governments across the country that built, you know, in my view, as someone who studied housing for, for, for many years, that, that money, that approach, actually built some of the most innovative um, housing in all of Canada. The, the St. Lawrence neighborhood in Toronto, um, some neighborhoods in Vancouver, some other examples you know, mixed use, mixed income, a lot of non-market housing. And so when we talk about adding supply, if we're serious about intensification and upzoning, um, you know, adding supply to existing neighborhoods, if we're serious about tackling the genuine affordability crisis, then a lot of that housing that gets built is going to have to be outside the realm of speculation, non-market, co-op, social, subsidized housing in one way, shape, or form. Because, you know, in our cities across the country, even two good incomes, that isn't enough to afford, right. you know, to live comfortably in cities. And simply letting the market build more, I've not come across any evidence that says if we, you know, quote-unquote, unleash the power of the market, build, baby, build, 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 is, you know, the common line from, from developers. You know, I've not come across a lot of research that says that is going to get us out of this mess because indeed we're increasing the, the, the supply how, more than we're increasing demand. I mean, it, we're outpacing it. There's a lot more supply than demand being created in our country and we're, we're yeah, still in the same I, spot, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, I think we have to look seriously about housing's role within our society. And, yeah. you know, it, it, for, for many years and decades, the pendulum has swung to that commodification side. And it's not saying that we have to, you know, get rid of any kind of profit, any kind of private development. That's certainly not the case. But we need to have measures that can shift that pendulum a little bit more proactively towards the um, the housing as a human right idea. Yeah. And there's all sorts of ways. You know, I talked about taxation and, and so on. There's also a huge asset of publicly owned land. Right. And all cities have this, whether it be owned by cities, school boards, um, provincial, federal governments, um, all sorts of things. There's huge, huge opportunities on publicly owned land to build the kind of housing, to add the kind of supply 
that the market is unable or unwilling to build. And that is, you know, genuinely affordable housing for people on low and moderate incomes. That's larger units for families. And you can, if, if the land is publicly owned, you can enact rules around prohibiting speculators, right? Uh, far more than you can uh, with land that's in private hands. So you can be much more creative, much more innovative about directly tackling right. the housing crisis by using that land to build housing that's outside of the market rather than selling it to, to a developer to, to, you know, for a quick buck. Gotcha. Uh, and fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. That's Brian Doucette, who is the Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion at the University of Waterloo. Interesting discussion. All right, if you saw 60 Minutes, was it this weekend or last week? I think it was this weekend. Scott Pelley, who uh, I think is the best writer in television, did a piece on the James Webb Telescope, which is going to be sent into space, I believe, next week. I think it's December 22nd, but it's taken a long time long, long time to get to this point. And it's a pretty amazing machine. And the really cool thing is there's a lot of Canadian content with this telescope. So to find out all about it, we're going to chat with Sarah Gallagher, who is a professor of physics and astronomy at Western University and the scientific advisor for the president of the Canadian Space Agency. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Shay. Uh, this is a very cool story. Um, this telescope, now, as I say, it's it's taken a long time to get to this point, right? It's been a start-and-go project for more than 20 years. Is that true? That is true. It's been a long time coming. Now, it finally is going to launch the 22nd, I think, is the date it's supposed to take off. It's actually been pushed back to the 24th. Okay, now the 24th. Gotcha, okay. Yeah. Um, and that's an incredibly intricate procedure launching this thing. Just tell us about all the things that have to happen on launch day, because it's a major process, right? It is a major process, and it actually takes more than just a day. So right now, the telescope is in Kourou, in French Guiana. It's going to be launched from there by the European Space Agency, and it's all folded up inside the tube, which is called a fairing of the rocket. And it's going to launch. Right now it's scheduled for 7.20 a.m. Eastern Time. So that would be, uh, be 5.20 a.m. your time, which uh, is appallingly early on December 24th. And the first thing that happens is it launches. And after a really short time, actually a, a few minutes, it's up in uh, what we call low Earth orbit. Right. And shortly after that, what has to happen is it's going to start unfolding. And the first thing that unfolds is the solar panel so that it can get light from the sun and convert it into power. And it's got an antenna that that unfolds as well so it can communicate back to the Earth. And then over the course of 29 days, almost an entire month, it's going to be traveling 1.5 million kilometers to where it's going to be hanging out. And on the way, the whole thing is very slowly unfurling. You have solar shades that are going to unfold so that it can and spread out to help the telescope hide from the sun and cool down. The mirror has to unfold and get all aligned. 
all of the instruments have to be turned on and checked out. So it's a very, very complicated procedure. It is a million things. It's like it's like a, a symphony. It's a dance. Everything has to go out perfectly. Now, the Canadian involvement in this, C- Canada was involved and played a pretty big hand in, in, in some of the various processes here. Tell us how Canada was involved. The Canadian Space Agency has contributed two instruments to the James Webb Telescope, and they are pretty important pieces of the whole system. So one of the systems is called the Fine Guidance Sensor, and that's the system. It's got a camera and various sensors that are used to point the telescope so it can know precisely where it's looking in space, so it can keep the telescope still enough to take really gorgeous pictures. Okay. The second instrument is called uh, NIRIS, which is the near, which stands for the Near Infrared Imaging and Imager and Slitless Spectrograph, and that's a science instrument that's going to do things like look at planets around other stars and at galaxies when the, when the universe was really really young. So that's actually going to be used to take science data. Because you're looking back through time, that's the thing that blows me away with this telescope. You're looking at things, but you're also looking at the past, like. Millions of years ago, right? Oh, not millions. Billions. (laughs) We're going way, way back. So back to when the universe was only about 100 million years old, so the baby universe. So really, really far back in time. And the way that works is that as uh, it takes time for light to travel from wherever it's emitted to our telescopes. And so the farther away we look, the longer that light has been traveling. And so that's how a telescope can actually work like a time machine. Yeah, amazing. So amazing. What are you most excited about? If, if everything goes according to plan and this thing starts working and we all have a chance to see some of these amazing new images, what are you most excited about? Oh, man, it's so hard to pick. Uh, you know, it's like asking someone to choose their favorite child, right? You're not <laughs> supposed to do that. So there's, there are going to be, uh, there are going to be studies of the atmospheres around other uh, planets around other stars. There's going to be pictures of galaxies that have supermassive black holes that are growing. There's going to be uh, studies of the of small bodies in our solar system and areas where giant stars are being born to study the impact of those big stars on their environments. I mean, there's so much cool stuff. Cosmic explosions, and then some of the most exciting things are going to be things we don't even know about that are just found because we have this amazing new tool that's going to find things that we hadn't even expected. So is our understanding of the universe that we live in going to be changing, you think, in the next year, two years, three years, however long? Oh, absolutely. So wow. we are we are going to be able to, to uh, I mean, for example, just studying the very first galaxies. Yeah. Um, we don't know what they look like. <laughs> so, <laughs> so whatever we see is going to be new. And, and that's true of, of so many of the observations that are going to be done with Webb because we, uh, I mean, th- th- we have questions and, and we're looking for answers. And, and if we already knew what the answer was, I mean, we wouldn't need to put a telescope up there. But, right. but we don't know. So, uh, so absolutely, we're going to learn new things. And, and our ideas about how, um, how galaxies change over time, what baby galaxies are like, what the details of the atmospheres of of planets around other stars, all those things are just going to be um, filled out and and expanded in in really exciting ways. Um, I got a question, and I and I know the answer to this, but I forgot, Sarah. Uh, people are, and we know what the Hubble telescope did in relation to where this um, telescope is. It's orders of magnitude deeper into space than the Hubble, right? Oh, yes. It's about, uh, so Hubble is in low Earth orbit, which yeah. is only about 400 kilometers from the surface of the Earth. Uh, 
So, I mean, it's where the International Space Station right. and, the, and the Space Shuttle, that's around where the Hubble is. So this is going to be 1.5 million kilometers away. Okay. That's four times farther than, than the distance of the moon. So much, much deeper into space compared to the Hubble. So an entirely different ballgame. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. Are you going to be watching on December 24th? You know I am, and we're going to follow up with you. When you get your first look through that telescope, get in touch with us and tell us what uh, you can report back. Uh, happy to do so. So, awesome. uh, All right, we'll be, we'll, be, we'll all be looking in the same direction on <laughs> December 24th. Thank you so much, Sarah. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Take care. That is Sarah Gallagher, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Western and the Scientific Advisor for the President of the Canadian Space Agency. And it's kind of cool because all these different... Um, People with ginormous brains, you know, uh, astrophysicists and astronomers and all the rest, you, you sort of book time on the telescope, right? And so you've got a couple hours to do whatever you're doing. It, it's Look up the 60 Minutes piece if you have time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.